You're listening to the Hey, It's Katie Q podcast. This podcast is creating a real and hopeful community supporting imperfect journeys to parenthood. And I'm your host, Katie. It's my goal to remind you that there is no one path to becoming a parent. This podcast will provide a space to walk alongside you in your grief after pregnancy or infant loss or through any struggles you might be facing on your journey to parenthood. I'm here to provide you with the tools to find joy again and to hold space for you any step alongside your journey. I'm so grateful you're here and look forward to connecting with you. Today we'll be talking to Megan Frank about her journey to parenthood. Megan lives in Minnesota and is a senior buyer for Target Corporation. Megan and her husband Matt began their journey to parenthood back in 2015 shortly after realizing that they might need to turn to science to help them begin their family. After a few rounds of medicated treatments with timed intercourse, finding an infertility clinic, invasive testing, being diagnosed with PCOS, two rounds of IUI, and one round of IVF, an OHSS diagnosis, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, two hospital visits, a pause for some healing, and a frozen embryo transfer. They became pregnant with their first baby, Juliet, who was born via emergency C-section in July of 2017. In 2018, they knew they wanted to expand their family using their additional frozen embryos. After a frozen embryo transfer, a miscarriage at 11 weeks, two DNCs, additional testing, a second frozen embryo transfer, a second miscarriage, a third frozen embryo transfer, followed by a third miscarriage, a change of IVF clinics, another round of IVF retrieval, and a fourth embryo transfer. They became pregnant with their baby, Kennedy, who was born in May of 2020. Today, Megan shares the ups and downs of their journey and how to hold hope during the process. Um, okay. Well, thanks for joining us today. Do you just want to tell me your name and where you're from? Yeah. My name is Megan and I'm from Plymouth, Minnesota. Awesome. And how, how are you feeling about sharing your story today? Um, I'm definitely a little bit nervous. I will say that speaking publicly, let alone speaking about myself and as well as about infertility, it's definitely not my strong suit. Um, with that said, like speaking about my story while I was going through it was really tough for me and something I couldn't do without crying. But now that I'm on the other side, I'm much more comfortable sharing my story. And I think it's just good for other people to understand how this is so common out there and you're not alone. So with that said, I'll probably get a little bit emotional and might be some tears, but, um, I'll do my best to share my story. That is okay. It's okay to feel the, feel the feels. Um, so take us back a little bit to kind of the beginning of your journey. When did you first know that you wanted to have children, that you wanted to be a mom? From the very beginning, like growing up, I knew I always wanted to be a mom, obviously solidified when I started dating Matt and we started to get super serious. Both of us have older siblings. We always had nieces and nephews running around and knew we wanted to have the same for for us and wanted to have a family. So we did start our journey to have kids pretty soon after we got married, um, like a year after our, at our one year anniversary. But yeah, I'd say from the very beginning, we knew we wanted to have children. 
Yeah. And so a lot of times I think we've kind of like touched on this before, but a lot of times going into parenthood, you know, we're, um, we kind of have this expectation in mind that it's just gonna work naturally right away. And it's going to be kind of easy and you just get pregnant and then you have a baby. So going into thinking about starting your family, what were your expectations in your mind? Yeah, that's a, such a great question. Um, cause looking back, I would say like, I always did have a gut that getting pregnant was going to be hard for me, but with all things in life, I did, I didn't try to have too high or too low of expectations or really overthink it. Um, but with that said, my sister did have a few issues getting pregnant. So I knew like genetically, like it could be me as well. Um, but in the back of my mind, I didn't think it'd be that hard, but I think I did have that gut feeling, which is why I do think we did decide to try to have kids probably earlier than some of our friends were and such. But, um, yeah, we got married when we were 26 and then started trying when we were 27, which is relatively young, but glad we started when we did. And when, when did you first know that you, that things weren't working naturally when, um, when did you have to have that conversation with your doctors? Yeah. So, um, I went off birth control in like a year after I got married. So like, it was like May ish May timeframe. And at that point, Katie, as you are a runner too, I was training for a marathon and that was like my fourth marathon. And I was taking it super, super seriously and probably over training, but I never got my period after stopping birth control. I ran that marathon in October Um, so after talking to some doctors, they thought it might be like hypothalamic amenorrhea is what they call it. I might be mispronouncing that. Um, but it can happen if you are having too strenuous of exercising and whatnot. So after I, it had been like five, six months off birth control and I still hadn't had my period after I ran that marathon, I, I took a huge break from working out and really took control of my body and was making sure I was um, being as, um, I was eating the right things and not working out too too much. Um, but I still, my body just wasn't responding. So that's where I started doing a bunch of different meds just with my regular OBGYN to try to jumpstart my period. Um, they do a thing that's really common called the progesterone challenge where you take progesterone for a few days. I, I forget how long it is. I still wasn't getting my period after that, which is super strange. Um, and that's when they learned that I had really, really low estrogen. So at that point I did, um, estrogen priming with the progesterone challenge. And I finally got my period, but I would say like, even now, like I've never gotten my period on my own without being on birth control. Like, so it was a journey to even get to that point to be like, okay, my body can at least have its period without birth control. Now, what do we do from here? Yeah. So take us through kind of the journey after that. What did it look like? What did it look like for you to um, become pregnant with your first baby? Yes. Yes. So I would say like getting in, getting up to like my first baby was where I was um, probably the most optimistic and hopeful and felt like I was beating infertility. But with that said, it still was certainly a roller coaster, but as mentioned, I was with my OBGYN. We did a few rounds of um, Clomid and Electrozole, um, both of all, all those rounds. So I think I did two to three of each of those um, with just timed intercourse, did not work and were not, I, I was still wasn't even confident I was ovulating. I would do those at home ovulation tests and they were always kind of iffy. 
Um, and at, at that point, even my doctor knew like, you should probably get a little bit more serious. And that's when I went to an infertility clinic in summer, 2016. So, so that, that first step that you just described is that, um, is that kind of like the first step for infertility where you would just, you would start taking certain medications, but still trying to conceive naturally. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Yep. So we were doing like at home ovulation tests and, um, yeah, intercourse every other day. Like it's just, yeah, yep, exactly. None of that was working. You do at home pregnancy tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when we did move to our fertility doctor, um, okay. to hopefully get a little bit more answers about what's going on. And they did a lot more invasive tests to ensure that my tubes are cleared and, a lot of other blood tests and such. And that's where we finally got the diagnosis that I do have PCOS. Um, so it was great to finally get some answers. And there's where we got a little bit more serious doing IUIs, which I felt much more comfortable with knowing we had like a concrete plan. Um, so just, just to stop you for a minute, can you yeah. just tell, tell us, um, briefly what PCOS is? Polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, it is essentially where I have a lot of follicles and I'm probably saying this incorrectly. Um, but it ultimately can lead to really irregular periods or none at all. I would say I'm probably on the more unique side where most people with PCOS are a little bit more overweight. Um, but lean PCOS is certainly a thing certainly out there. So something to keep in mind if you don't fit into like some of the more traditional definitions of PCOS. Um, but it just makes conceiving a little harder because you're not going to ever have frequent and normal periods. Sure. And then tell us what IUI is. IUI is interuterine insemination. So in this case, we are doing some of the same drugs that I was doing, um, with my OBGYN, but with the fertility clinic, they monitor you via ultrasound to see when you are ovulating. And then when I, when I have a follicle at a at the right size, instead of just waiting for my body to ovulate on, on my own, I would take one shot. At that point, I thought it was like, oh my gosh, I'm taking a shot. This is so serious. This is crazy. Little did I know how many more shots would be in my future. Um, but that one shot makes sure that you do ovulate. And then you go into the clinic and they, with your husband, and they will insert the semen into that way. So you can be 100% confident that the semen is meeting the egg and you'll hopefully get pregnant. Um, okay. so I think the success rates for IUIs are anywhere between like 10 and 20%. So I know a lot of people have had a lot of success with them. Um, but we did two rounds of the IUIs and both of them did not work. They weren't ever where my doctor wanted me to be on the right days where I'm always going a little bit longer, um, or my lining wasn't quite where it would be. Um, and I'd say after that second failed IUI was where I was just like, this is not worth our time and money where IUIs are still super expensive too. And for that 10 to 20% success rate, I felt like we were spending thousands of dollars for not the, the success rate I was hoping for. And the next round after this type of IUI, where I was just doing like oral drugs and like one shot for ovulation would be to do medicated stimulation with an IUI. So you take like lower dosages of IVF meds Um, and then instead of doing a retrieval and such, you would do an IUI. So at that point, the IUIs get even more expensive with still like not the highest success rate. 
Um, so that is when we decided with my doctor's recommendation that IVF would probably be the next best step for our journey. So take us through, I guess, just at this point, before we get into IVF, um, how are you, how are your spirits feeling? How are you feeling mentally and emotionally? Because this is kind of a draining process. And um, I know sometimes for a lot of people, it can feel really lonely and isolating. So how were you and Matt feeling at this point? Yeah, um, I would say after that second IUI, I certainly had my breakdown where at this point it had been like a year and a half of just no, no strong signs that we were, that this was working and I was losing hope. Um, when we made the decision to move to IVF is when I've probably felt the most like sense of calm where I was like, this is it. Everybody gets pregnant with IVF. Like IVF is, is your secret sauce to become a mother and we are doing the right thing to become a family. Um, and I was definitely more hopeful with that said, um, it's super overwhelming. The costs associated with IVF and the number of appointments you need to go to, um, can be certainly very daunting. One of the things that I did as I started this journey, which I kind of just kind of fell into is I started following a lot of different accounts on Instagram that were going through similar situations, going through IUIs, IVF. And, um, I decided to kind of create my own Instagram account where I could document what I was going through and what I was feeling. And with that all, I met a lot of great people from around the country who are going through similar situations and got a lot of, a lot of support, um, through them. Cause at this point I wasn't talking to my friends at all about what we were going through. Um, that helped me feel a lot more confident that IVF was the right route for us to take at this point. So, yeah. Wow. Um, so once you started IVF, then what did kind of take us through that process of what that looked like? How long did it take for you? And, um, yeah, just take us through that journey a little bit. Yeah. IVF is, um, a little bit overwhelming in that, there's a lot of different meds and appointments you will be taking. Um, but I would say the clinic I was at was the center of excellence with my insurance. So I'm super thankful that target, my employer does have, um, pretty great infertility coverage. So I had no decision to make in terms of which clinic I was going to go to, which helps in terms of the stress in, um, IVF is one of the first steps you're going to have to make is which clinic do I go to? And like, there's a handful out there, especially in the twin cities area that you could choose from. I had to go to RMIA. Um, I was assigned a doctor that I loved. I, at that point I'd gotten to know the nurses pretty well with the IUIs and various other appointments. Um, but ultimately, um, ordered all the meds, got thousands of dollars worth of shots and supplements and, um, oral drugs delivered and I started my journey with taking daily shots for about 10 days. Um, and what was really interesting about my retrieval process is with PCOS is they don't really know how you're going to respond. And it turns out with me, I was super, super, super sensitive to these drugs where at first I wasn't really responding. And so they kept upping my drugs, which I was not happy about because of how much more expensive that is. You get these drugs overnight, overnighted to you, you take more. 
And I think it was like day seven or day eight, I just exploded. My ovaries were um, extremely overstimulated. I did what they called that. I like coasted for a while and I didn't take any drugs for a few days before my retrieval. And then I went in for my retrieval after I think about 10 or 11 days of from the beginning of when I started the stimulation drugs. Um, so the retrieval is obviously a big moment in your IVF journey. So that's where you go under, you, um, are in the clinic there and they extract all of the eggs from your ovaries. And, um, they actually retrieved 58 eggs from, from me, which at the time RMA said was like their record, their highest number of embryos. So for most people, I would say like, you want more eggs, like, right. It ups your chances. And, but at the same time, you want quality eggs. And of those 58 that they retrieved, we ended up with eight frozen embryos with, and again, like eight frozen embryos is amazing. Like I know a lot of people who would be in awe of that number. Um, but knowing that we started with 58 and ended with eight, like looking back and like, Oh, was that really the right thing? Um, and now I know looking back for sure that the quality of those embryos and thus eggs was probably not what they wanted it to be. But with that said, we had eight frozen embryos and I was elated. Um, but as the doctor expected, because of those 58 eggs that we did retrieve, um, I ended up with OHSS, which is over ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, and it happens, um, it's something that they warn you about with IVF. Like, I think they say like one to 2% of patients get it. Um, but essentially I was in the most pain of my entire life, like probably more than I was post having a baby. Um, but my embryos, because of how overstimulated they were, or my, my abdomen was so bloated. Like I looked like I was three to four months pregnant. I couldn't eat for two or three days after that retrieval. Um, but finally, I think it was like the third or fourth day I was finally feeling like maybe I could go to work at that point. I'd been like MIA from work with work, not knowing at all what I was going through. Cause I was home after this procedure, super, super sick. Um, I was trying to drink some water and like get myself out of bed to head into the office. And I was just, I couldn't stop throwing up and we had to go to the ER. As they said at that point, like head, head to the doctor um, and I went in two separate times over those next probably three or four days and ended up getting my, my abdomen drained of all this fluid, which helped relieve all the bloating and such, but it was obviously super painful, not a fun situation to be in. Um, so all that to say, like, I, knowing that we weren't going to test our embryos, I was hopeful that we could do an embryo transfer five days after that retrieval. So they let those embryos grow in the lab. And then we could potentially transfer them five days later. Um, but because of everything I went through, we had to freeze them. And then I had to wait for my body to kind of get back into a healthy position and then do a new round of drugs and whatnot to get my lining and uterus to a, a decent spot. So we gave it a month and a half, two month break before we did um, our embryo transfer. And I remember thinking like, and that's the other thing with this whole infertility journey is like every roadblock you hit, like looking back and I'm like, oh, that was only a month and a half, two month delay. But like, that feels like years. Yeah. When, where when I, you want a baby, like you want a baby now. You, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I was like expecting to do that transfer five days after the retrieval. Now I'm waiting a month and a half. Like I, that was 
I did lose a little bit of hope there where I was like, oh, this is not going as planned. Yeah. This is not good. Um, but yeah, we, it was the right thing to do. And I knew it was the right thing to do because my body was in no position to try to carry a, a, a baby at that point. So, um, gave our body a rest and then started gearing up for our first frozen embryo transfer. Um, and the nice thing about the frozen embryo transfers versus like IUIs and like the IVF retrieval is that from a medication standpoint, they're pretty light. Um, I don't even remember exactly what I took, but you take some drugs to make sure your lining's getting thick enough. You go in for ultrasounds to make sure your lining's getting into that optimal spot. And then you go in for the embryo transfer, which is such a cool experience. You're sitting there and you can see the embryos on the screen, or they'll give you a picture of them. And like you envision them as these babies that you're going to take home. And then you leave the clinic, what they call pupo, where it's pregnant until proven otherwise. So you tell yourself in your head that you are pregnant and this is going to work. Um, for our first frozen embryo transfer, we did transfer two embryos because at that point, again, like I was so ready to be a mom and, um, was okay with the thought of having twins. So we transferred two. this was now November, 2016 and waited the eight, nine days before going in again for a blood test to see if it worked. The two week wait. Yes. The dreaded dreaded two week wait. It's so rough. Thankfully during all that, we had Abby and Kane's wedding was like right before I started the, right before I started the, um, progesterone for the, the transfer. And then we were actually at another friend's wedding in Dallas the day we did our like at home pregnancy test before the, um, the actual blood test at the clinic. So I had really fun distractions along the way, secretly not drinking at all these weddings was not fun, but (laughs) Um, yeah, good distractions for sure, but worth it, (laughs) worth it indeed. Yes. So then, then what happened? What happened after your first transfer? Yeah. So at that hotel in Dallas, we tested and we saw two super bright lines and Matt and I were absolutely elated. Um, at that point it's like, you knew for sure, like in my head, I knew for sure I was taking home a baby. I didn't know if it was gonna be a twin twins or a singleton, but I didn't know miscarriage was even a thing. I thought my body just had trouble getting pregnant, but I, it didn't even cross my mind that, um, staying pregnant would ever be an issue. And thankfully for this pregnancy, it wasn't, we went in for our first ultrasound and found out we had one healthy baby in there. Um, and I ultimately went on to have a pretty routine pregnancy with no complications at all. Um, everything went as expected at the very end. I did have to have, um, emergency C-section. I had a little bit of high blood pressure, but came home with a baby. Um, nine months later, our little girl, Juliet. And I remember thinking that I beat infertility. Like I have seven, no, at that point I had six frozen embryos waiting in the, in the freezer for me. And I knew I never would have to go through a a retrieval process again. Like, and that's where the, the biggest expense is with IVF. Um, and thought I had like the secret sauce to making our grow our family bigger. Like this is it. We can just do a frozen embryo transfer and have more siblings down the line. But little did I know that the, it wouldn't quite go that way. There's no guarantees at any of this. Yeah. So, um, about how long did you, did you wait to have the conversation of like, okay, I think we'd like to try for a second baby. 
we knew like when Letty was like six months, we wanted our kids close in age. So we waited the year to the year mark and we um, did our, our second frozen embryo transfer um, right after Letty's first birthday. So they're going to be about a little less than two years apart, which we were excited about because um, we had the parenting thing figured out. You love your little baby so much. And I wanted to see her be a big sister. Um, but yeah, we wanted our kids close in age and we did do that first embryo transfer pretty soon after having our first. Yeah. During that process, um, did you get a lot of questions from people of like, when are you going to have your second and, um, and things like that? Yeah, we did, especially, yeah, we did. Um, not as much as I might've expected. And I think I started to get them a little bit more when I found out I was pregnant with my second. And at that point, it's just kind of like, oh, I'm not going to say anything, but yeah, where you want to have kids soon. But it's always awkward answering those questions, right? (laughs) Um, But yeah, we started it, I think, before like most of those questions are coming in. I feel like it's when they get a little bit over that year and a half, two year mark. But thankfully at that one year mark, people are still like, okay, they still have a a youngin. I won't ask that question quite yet, but we did. We definitely got some of it. Um, so then what happened then you are ready for your second implantation and, um, take us through what happened next. Yes. So we did our second frozen embryo transfer in early August, 2018. Um, at that point we decided to transfer just one embryo because after having one child, you realize what rock star twin moms are. And again, knowing that it worked the first time, um, we felt like our chances were still pretty strong with transferring just one embryo and it worked. It, our first, our second transfer, um, we did our test at home eight, nine days after the transfer, saw positive pregnancy test, went in for my blood test. Every, all the HCG tests came back super strong. Um, so we were super confident and really excited about it. Um, however, I think it was like a few days before that first six week ultrasound at my fertility clinic, I did have some bleeding. Um, so I remember being a little bit concerned because that did not happen with my first pregnancy, but, um, my clinic assured me that bleeding, especially with IVF pregnancies can be common and it was nothing to worry about. And it wasn't that much. So I wasn't too concerned. Um, I went on to have my two ultrasounds at my fertility clinic, um, and everything was looking great. We saw the heartbeat baby was moving around. Um, I went in for my 10 week ultrasound at my OBGYN. Um, again, everything looked great. It was such a fun day because we took, we took Letty with us at that appointment and, um, she didn't really understand what was going on, but it was just like, we're going to be a family of four. And we were all sitting there at the OBGYN seeing this little baby on the, on the screen. Um, and it was at that point that we did tell my parents that we were going to have Letty be a sibling. And she had the big sister t-shirt on and all of that. So, well, I certainly had doubts with that pregnancy, with the bleeding that I did have, knowing that we had three strong ultrasounds with heartbeats. Um, my doubts were certainly um, faded by that point. And I was pretty excited about having another little babe in our family um, in the spring. Um, with my first pregnancy, though, I did do genetic testing. Um, I did want to find out the gender. So I went in and did this again for this pregnancy. So we went into our 12-week appointment to get that checked. Um, and that's where we 
unexpectedly, we're sitting there in, and I think about you, Katie, because we were at this Maple Grove Hospital in the ultrasound room, and they said the dreaded words out of nowhere saying, I'm sorry, there is no heartbeat. And I remember just being in complete shock because you have those doubts, but then they go away when you're hearing that everything is fine, you're seeing that heartbeat. And then, and just like a few words from this nurse that I hadn't met says these words, it all just comes crushing, crashing down. And, um, that's when we learned that we kind of unexpectedly lost this baby who they said stopped growing at about 11 weeks. So, cause we had seen the heartbeat at 10 weeks. This is my 12 week appointment and mm-hmm. the babe had grown a little bit, but had stopped growing. So, um, I ended up having a DNC a few days later, um, and ultimately ended up having to have a second one about a week after that. Cause I was having some complications and a little bit of, and a lot of bleeding between all of those. They did go and my HCG was super high. That was the other thing. It's like, I was, so there's still something happening in my uterus. So I had, they had to go in for a second DNC this time they went in with a camera, um, and kind of got everything cleared out, but it was a super rough two weeks where I was missing a lot of work, uh, spending 12 hours at a hospital, um, FaceTiming Letty, trying to just understand what was going on. Because a few weeks ago, I was excited about this April baby. And now here I'm sitting with in a hospital room with no baby in my stomach. So um, tough time. But at that point, I, would, I remember just being so overly grateful for Letty. Like I knew she was... Um, blessing and a miracle, but going through a miscarriage and having her at home to just be able to hug and look at and disbelief was such a blessing. Yeah. What was that? Like after you went home from the hospital, after your second DNC, what was that grieving process like for you? Did you have anyone that you could turn to or how did you cope with that? Yeah. I would say my parents, my sister were all a huge support. Again, my like little Instagram community with my small following, but like just having that group of people who understood that these things happen and had the right things to say really helped. And then for me, like I just needed to do something. And I remember like on the way home from one of my checkups, like a day or two later after the second DNC, I stopped at Home Depot and I got paint and I painted our master bedroom. And it was something that I was going to, I like had a painter scheduled to come a month later to do it. Cause I was like, Oh, I can't paint if I'm pregnant. But I like took the day off of work and just took the time to myself and painted my bedroom and just turned on country music and some Christian music and zoned out and painted. Um, but it's, it's hard to stay competent at that point, knowing that, yeah, yeah it's just tough, but So then what did it look like after that? Cause we know you have two babies now. So what, what was the process after your loss? Yeah. Um, so after having now a C-section and two DNCs, my doctor wanted to do a few extra tests to make sure that my uterus was in good condition because there's potential concerns with scarring at that point. Um, he mentioned at one point that I might have Asherman syndrome after looking at one of my ultrasounds and that freaked me out. I would say I like over Googled and, um, overanalyzed him mentioning this one word, but I ended up going in and doing a hysteroscopy to make sure 
that there was no scarring and we got the clear that everything looked good. And I was cleared to move forward with now what would be my third frozen embryo transfer. That was after taking probably like four or five months off between all these like random appointments and um, fights with insurance and all of that to gear up for my third transfer. Because at this point too, that was the other thing that happened. I was like, why did I have to wait that long? Because at this point too, my insurance, which I'm again, so thankful to have, um, they switched centers of excellence. So now I was no longer covered at RMIA and I had to go to a new clinic called CCRM. So I was going to transfer my embryos to CCRM to get my insurance coverage. But then CCRM said, no, my embryos are not good enough quality. They would not take them. I would have to start over. And I was like, I'm not starting over. I have these perfectly frozen embryos at RMIA. So I had to file these big appeals with my insurance to get them to finally cover RMIA because I had frozen embryos there. Um, anyways, I ended up getting that. Okay. I did my third transfer at RMIA, um, transferred one embryo again, just thinking that first time was a fluke. Um, this time I came home and we had a positive pregnancy test, but the blood test came back with the HCG being low. It was in like the forties or fifties where it's not where they wanted it to be. I was told to stay on meds, go back again in 48 hours. Um, and my HCG dropped and they call it a chemical pregnancy and it didn't work that time. Um, so we geared up for our fourth transfer after that. So waited again, another like month and a half, two months, um, more meds, more appointments. This time we decided to transfer two. And at this point too, it was around that like April timeframe by now where I was like, okay, this is when I should be bringing home my baby. Um, and it was a tough, um, feeling to know that I was still waiting to get that positive pregnancy test when I should be having a newborn at home with me. Mm -hmm. But I also thought of it as like, um, this babe was watching over me and I was going to find out if this fourth embryo transfer worked on that baby's due date, which I thought was pretty cool. And I was like, we're transferring two embryos, like this, our fifth and sixth embryo at this point, like this has to work. The numbers are in our favor. Um, so we transferred to, and came home, did our pregnancy test after that eight days. And again, it was just that faint pregnancy line. And we had another chemical pregnancy, um, where the HCG just never rose. It was there, but, um, not strong enough. And I, this is where Matt would say too, that I like lost all hope. Or I was like, there's no yeah. way Letty's ever going to be a big sister. Like at this point, one out of six of my embryos had worked and something is not right. Um, so we had a consult with my doctor. We sat down, laid out all the potential issues. And at this point he recommended doing genetic testing with my embryos, knowing that one out of six is not normal at this point, knowing too, that my body can carry a, a pregnancy. Like it's not me. That's not like my body. Um, knowing that all the other tests have come back showing my uterus is fine. So he did recommend moving forward with, um, a new retrieval with genetic testing. And that was super overwhelming to hear because I thought that side of this journey was done with. Um, again, I had such a hard time with that retrieval that the last thing I wanted was to go through that again, um, let alone the expenses of doing another retrieval but, um, I knew it was what we had to do if we wanted to grow our family. Um, 
So we ended up moving forward with another retrieval. At this point, it was fall 20, what time was this? Fall 2018, I want to say. 2019, fall 2019. Yeah. Cause it was right after this like summer, late summer, 2019. It was soon after Letty had just turned two and we had to go to our new clinic. Cause now that I had no, had, had to start over insurance now made me move to CCRM, which I was excited about. Um, CCRM has a great reputation. Um, and I was excited to kind of get a fresh start and whatnot. And with that said too, CCRM had a lot of um, great data on my first retrieval that they could adapt my meds and um, my meds for my second retrieval. So they tweaked all the different drugs I was on. And I ultimately ended up having a much more smooth retrieval where I had no over stimulation. They retrieved this time 38 eggs, which is again, a lot. Um, but I felt much better after that. And of those 38, I had 16 that could be frozen. So not only did they retrieve far less eggs, but I had like twice as many that could end up being frozen. So we sent off those 16 embryos to their genetic testing, um, lab, which is super strange to do. And, um, we found out a few weeks after that, that nine out of the 16 were genetically normal, which was a lot higher than what we were expecting. Cause again, knowing that one out of the six potentially were genetically normal with my first retrieval, we were not expecting to have that high of a rate for the second, but the doctor thinks a lot of it came back to just a higher quality of embryos being retrieved the second round, knowing that I wasn't overstimulated and that we are, they were much more conservative with the drugs that I was on. So I was feeling at this point, much more optimistic, knowing that we knew we had genetically normal, normal embryos that we could transfer, um, to hopefully make Lydia a big sister. So, okay. You have your embryos. This is, this is such a process. I can't even imagine what it was like both emotionally and physically. And, you know, a lot of times just trying to keep this to yourself because you don't want to share all the details until you know something good's going to happen. And, oh man, that's just, it's such a journey that you've been on. So, um, after this, uh, this next round, then, then what happens? (laughs) Then we finally go in for our fifth transfer. And I was like, this is it. Our first at CCRM. The first time we know it's a genetically normal embryo was the seventh embryo we were transferring. Um, and I was feeling super optimistic, but at the same time guarded. Um, but we did that transfer. We came home eight days later, did our pregnancy test. And it was but we were pregnant and I saw the video of us finding out and Letty was there again, not really knowing what she was doing, but she's holding this pregnancy test saying it's pregnant. And we are so excited. Um, and again, I just had so much hope because I was at a new clinic with strong embryos. And, um, but then we got the call and this is like kind of where this roller coaster of this first 12 weeks of this pregnancy begins, because then we got the call back from the clinic with that HCG number. And after all this, like I've been overanalyzing every HCG number I get. Um, and again, because my chemical pregnancies were at like that 50 range where it's like, Oh, you're kind of there, but not really. And Letty was her first HCG was like 400. So, and the first miscarriage 
H2G was in like the hundreds too. So I was like, it's going to be like in the hundreds, we're going to be clear. It's going to be great. And it came back at a 70. And I remember just thinking like, this gray area is not good. It did. I was super stressed out about it. Um, we ended up actually going to a wedding in, um, up North in the iron range over that night where I had to wait to do my second HEG test over that 48 hour time frame. Um, so again, I had good distractions and whatnot, but I remember thinking about it every five minutes being like, what is my body doing right now? It better not be miscarrying. I hope this HCG is doubling. So we drove back at the sunrise Sunday morning, got to the clinic at like 9am on a Sunday, did our second HCG test. And they like CCRM had been so great calling me within a few hours of all these tests and, or, and, and of the embryo test. But I always heard back from clinics after a few hours, of these blood tests, I had never heard anything until late Sunday night. They finally called me and they said, you typically want your HCG to double every 48 hours. And it only increased by like 80%. And it was at like 123. So we were definitely heading in the right direction, but I still was just so disappointed and sad because I just, I didn't have the confidence after going through chemical pregnancies before this, that this was what should be happening. Um, but then I went back again, 40 hours after that. And then finally it like tripled or quadrupled. And the doctors were like, you are perfectly pregnant. It like caught up more than ever. It was at like five, 600. And at that point I was like, this is it. We're good to go. And we now did our next two week wait for that first ultrasound, which is again, like super, stressful waiting for that. So now I'm like on this roller coaster again, thinking things were great. And then a few days before this first ultrasound at CCRM, I started bleeding and I was like, the only time I've ever bled in a pregnancy was when I miscarried. So I assumed it was not a good situation again. Um, but the, again, CCRM assured me it was fine. And I went in for that ultrasound and it was, and our baby was there. Heartbeat was strong, looked good. I didn't bleed again. Um, I had another ultrasound at CCRM two weeks after that, where they like officially graduate you, give you a cute CCRM onesie, um, and you move on to your OBGYN appointment about two weeks after that. So at that first OBGYN appointment at, at, I think it was like 10, 11 weeks, again, saw that heartbeat. Um, I had talked to my doctor who I love about my like just anxiety at this point, knowing I wanted to get over that 12 week mark where um, we lost our, our first baby. So I had, at this point we had not told our family we we're going to wait until that 12 week appointment, um, and left that an appointment was feeling good about things. And then I went to bed that night and in the middle of the night, I woke up and I felt like I had wet my pants and I had started bleeding all over again. And it was, I thought for sure we had lost the baby and it was nothing I had ever experienced, even with that first miscarriage. So called my doctor. They got me in for an ultrasound at like 8 a.m. that morning. Um, again, at that Maple Grove hospital. At this point, I like was kind of done with Maple Grove because I just like couldn't <laughs> associate myself there. So I'd been going to uh, St. Louis Park. But that was the only hospital they could get me in for that morning. And I had to get in ASAP because I was stressing out. So there I was at 11 and a half weeks pregnant in or I don't even 10 and a half weeks pregnant in the same ultrasound room that I was when they told me I, my first baby had lost, had didn't have a heartbeat. Um, but miraculously they did the ultrasound and our baby was there moving around and was totally fine. There was a subchorionic hemorrhage, which was the cause for the bleed. So they were able to measure that. And we did get some answers on why there was some bleeding. They did expect for there to be 
a little bit more bleeding throughout the pregnancy. And I think I had maybe a little, but nothing like that, that one night. Um, so it was good to at least get some answers and, and know that the baby was fine. But as you know, there's just like no assurances with it all. And I remember being really stressed out for the rest of the pregnancy. I, and thankfully my doctor is just the best. And she allowed me to go into the park neglect clinic whenever I wanted to just do a, a fetal heart rate check. Um, and I probably did that a little bit more than I should, but I like loved the reassurance, just hearing that heartbeat and knowing things are fine. So I did that until about 20 weeks. And then at that point I was like, okay, I can calm down. Um, but we, I, we did finally tell my parents when I was going in for that ultrasound after that night of bleeding. So it wasn't like an exciting way to tell my parents, but I was crying in the car and being like, this is what we're doing. Pray for us. Um, and that's how they found out we were pregnant with our second, but I would say after all of that, um, pregnancy was good. It's crazy how different the two pregnancies can be. I was so much larger with Letty than with our now second girl, Kenna. Um, but ultimately they were pretty uneventful pregnancies there on out after that, um, kind of 12 week scare. How did you deal with the emotional piece of, um, your pregnancy with Kenna of just being pregnant after loss? Um, I know you touched on being able to get some extra heartbeat checks, but what else did you do to keep your anxiety in check? Because it's kind of, it kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah. Um, that's, it was a mind game for sure. Um, one of these girls that I met on Instagram, she's now like a fertility coach. Her name's Kristen Snyder and she's awesome. But I connected with her a lot and even did some like video chats with her. And the one thing that she told me to do, which I did throughout the entire pregnancy was have an affirmation that I would say to myself daily. And I would say my body can and will carry this pregnancy whenever. And I would repeat that. And I had like a drawing on my, um, by like my, my refrigerator that I would see every single day. And I would repeat that my body can and will carry this pregnancy whenever I had any doubts, um, and just tried to stay as positive as I could. Um, but it's hard and I don't know what the right answer is. Cause I still obviously had doubts until I had that baby in my arms, but, um, that was, that was what helped me the most was just having that affirmation to repeat. Yeah. There's really no guarantees after with a pregnancy after loss until you get that baby in your arms, no matter how far along you are. It's like, well, something could happen still. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. It's tough. Yep. So this was all in all, um, how, how long was this journey from the time you first started going to the, your first infertility clinic until you had your second baby? Good question. Okay. So we went to our first infertility clinic in fall 2015. And then we like officially graduated from CCRM in 2019, like fall 2019. Um, and then had Kenna in May, 2020. So, a so long, long road. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm looking back at like Matt and I's marriage. I'm like, we spent so much of our marriage, like, cause we got married in 2014 like stressing about getting pregnant or having a newborn at home or being pregnant. Whereas now I'm, I'm excited for our, our future with where we're at. Um, not being stressed about ever doing another retrieval at this point, knowing we're more than happy with two kids. Maybe we'll do another embryo transfer at some point, but having a lot of this journey behind us, which certainly made us a, 
a, a stronger couple and whatnot, but it's an interesting, like five years to look back at from a relationship standpoint. Yeah, that that was going to be my next question is just what is the what is the experience been like for your relationship? What did you do that was helpful to because this could this can make or break people with all of the stress and everything. Did you, you know, is there anything specific that you did to kind of make sure that you were communicating about your feelings or um anything there that worked well for you? Um yeah. Um I would say like it it made us have really tough and honest conversations a lot earlier in our marriage than we probably would have, like, especially financially knowing how much money we were spending on this. Like we had to plan out a lot of our expenses a lot differently than we likely would have or could have if we didn't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars, um, trying to grow our family. And that, and on top of that too, like you had to answer some really weird, crazy questions from like a legal standpoint, when you get these embryos, like you, when they freeze them, there's obviously liabilities on what if we get divorced? What if Matt passes away? What if, um, all these, what ifs where it like leads you and your, and your significant other to have a lot of interesting, complex questions, um, very early in your marriage before kids even enter the picture where life gets even more complicated. Um, but I, I do think it has made us a stronger couple overall, knowing we've already had to have a lot of tough conversations. Matt's seen me in tears probably a lot more than he imagined at this point in our marriage. <laughs> yeah. Throughout all this, I would randomly break down. He'd be like, what is going on? Um, but, Rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. yes. um, what looking back on, on your journey so far, what advice would you give to someone who is traveling in your shoes, going through maybe infertility or even, um, loss and infertility? What would you, what would you say to them? Um, one thing that I tried to keep in mind with my journey and every roadblock we hit and every loss and chemical pregnancy and extra appointment and all that was, this is making me stronger is what I would tell myself. And every roadblock you hit makes you stronger and tougher. And yes, it sucks at times, but I would tell myself that it's just preparing me to be a better mother. Um, because I, I know now motherhood is not easy and there's a lot of difficulties that come with it, but I do feel super strongly that just having that emotional and physical, um, hardships to get to the point of where I am today has made me a better mother because of it. Um, and something we had talked about briefly, uh, last time we talked, Katie was about how I do, I feel like this is a little bit controversial, but something I do feel super strongly about is that mothers who have gone through loss and have gone through infertility and all these heartbreaks to become parents. I do think that we look at our kids differently. There's not a day that goes by that I don't look at Kenna or Letty and I'm just like in amazement. I'm like, you used to be this little embryo on this screen. And now you are this spicy, adorable <laughs> toddler baby looking at me. And it just blows my mind. And it makes me be a more patient and loving mother because of it. Cause I, I, I see them differently than I think a lot of other mothers have. Yeah. I can definitely see how when your patients might be running thin with a toddler on sleepless nights, you're like, 
Okay. But so many things had to go right for this, for you to be here. (laughs) Yes. And that's such a good point. Cause I remember thinking too, when I was pregnant and like hearing other people complain, or when I was trying to get pregnant, hearing other people complain about late nights and costs and diapers. And I'm like, I would die to have that be my, be my, my concern right now is how much money I'm going to spend on a diaper. And if I am going to wake up five times in the middle of the night, like that is what I'm praying for so much right now. Um, yeah, yeah. It puts everything in perspective after everything that, yeah, you've gone through with loss and infertility for sure. Definitely. Um, okay. Just kind of wrapping up our conversation, I guess, is there anything else that you would like to say about your journey that you'd like the public to know anything, um, scary or surprising or anything that you kind of want to wrap up with? Um, good question. So regarding like general public, this is probably a little specific, but I would say like one thing I would love to see changed from an insurance aspect is how difficult it is to use insurance and navigate, um, centers of excellence and pharmacies and, um, doctor bills, et cetera. Even when you have insurance coverage, again, I'm incredibly grateful that target did have some insurance coverage, but with that said, it was hard to even use that insurance coverage, let alone to navigate it. But with everything going through, going on with infertility, the number of appointments you have, like, I can't even tell you, I probably spent 30% of my like appointment, like call, like so much of my time and effort dealing with insurance and calling them to figure out like why this med's not getting covered or why this med case changed between when I placed the order and when I was billed and how complex it is. Like I would love to see it be a, a simple, love to see some of that, um, complexity out of the equation, given how hard infertility is already the added stress of dealing with the insurance side of it is a lot to take on. Um, and then the other thing is I, I love you shared this on your Instagram. I think that I think it was Australia now has a leave of absence policy for New Zealand for, for what New Zealand, New yeah. Zealand, New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yes. New Zealand. Yes. Um, for, um, miscarriage. And I remember thinking the same thing where it's like, I felt so weird being gone from work for like two, three days, but I also had just had a, a major procedure. I had just been sitting in the hospital until nine o'clock at night, but I felt this weird pressure to go deal with candy out of socks at 8 a.m. the next morning when it was the last thing I could ever care about. Um, but I mean, I think that would be great to see if there was some sort of leave policy for miscarriage, knowing how, how prevalent it is. But I think the first step to get there is just being a more open with how common it all is, right? Like one in four, I think, go through these types of loss. So yeah. more apparent we can make that it's that's hap- that it's happening out there to companies and employers. Um, more likelihood there will be for these leaves to be more common. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the last question, just kind of part of the mission of what I want to do with this community is to share stories of all types of non-traditional journeys to parenthood. So others don't feel so alone because it can be a really isolating process. Um, and just also provide some hope for people kind of walking through the darkness that they might be going through. So do you have any hopeful last, last words word. that you'd like to leave, um, leave people with? 
Oh gosh, I'm not a very inspirational person at all. <laughs> but I, I like as simple as it is, I would just say you're not alone. Like I remember feeling so alone in my like small group of friends that I have when I was going through this. But the truth was like via this like little Instagram community that I found is there are so many of us going through all of these types of um issues and and such, which is why too, like I would go sit in these waiting rooms at these clinics and there's all these other girls sitting there too. Like it is so common. Um, it can feel incredibly isolating when you are by your, in your house, making these appointments or like just in the doctor's room with just the other doctor, but know that there is an army of women out there fighting these same battles. Um, and you're not alone. So find your community, obviously like what you're doing, Katie is a great way for people to feel like they're not alone. Um, so the more people out there doing what you're doing, I think is going to make a world of a difference to help people feel less isolated as they're going through these journeys. Yeah. So that would be my message is know that you are not alone. It's, it's common and it sucks, but, yeah. um, you will get through it and it'll make you a stronger mother on the back end. Thank you, Megan. And thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode of the Hey, It's Katie Q podcast. We are so grateful for you and your support and would love to hear your stories. If you have traveled a less traditional journey to parenthood, whether that includes loss, infertility, surrogacy, adoption, and so much more, you can contact us on our website, heyitskatieq.com. That's H-E-Y-I-T-S-K-A-T-I-E-Q.com on the contact form. You can listen to this podcast on our website or on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review and we will see you next week.